Jan Holden originally prompted me to get in touch with you. Mm-hmm. As, of course, she's been a researcher herself. Because she was once uh, editor of the uh, Journal of Near-Death Experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I cancelled my subscription a long time ago for various reasons. Mm-hmm. You've, I think you've um, written a few accounts for that journal, haven't you, as well? Uh, yeah, one or two. And, um, uh, well, basically, they were not well received. No. It's the community, and they're mostly in favour of the idea, so you, I suppose you can expect some, some backlash. Well, Same as... Um, it was not so much that. It was basically the uh, very rigid belief systems. Mm. Um, well, you, which, yeah, yeah, you find them on both sides. Unfortunately, it's just trying unfortunately to kind of. Unfortunately, you do, mm. and uh, because I notice when I speak to skeptics, they say, "Yeah, of course it's rubbish," <laughs> but they offer no proof. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, it's good. It's it's good to have some kind of belief system to go along with, as long as you can kind of realise that your perception might be incorrect and not to be closed off to the other side. And to try and limit as much cognitive bias as possible. We all have it, obviously, but well, yeah. My best mm. critics are people who, fanatic, uh, who are fanatical believers. Mm. <laughs> they're the ones I appreciate most. Yes, yes. Well, they're generally the loudest, aren't they, and the most obvious online, especially. In fact, they provide an enormous, ingenious range of objections to everything I suggest. Mm. You never get that from sceptics. They just say, of course it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you're a, um, what's your main line of work? You're an anesthesiologist, is that right? I'm an anesthesiologist. I've now retired and I started a machine learning business. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And, what's that called? Uh, what? What's that Ansuras. Mm-hmm. Very operative anesthesia and surgical assessment system. In other words, predicting um, uh, complications after operations by means of machine learning uh, applied to the condition of people beforehand mm-hmm. and then related to operation code because every operation stimulates the nervous system differently and so you get a different range of complications in uh, some types of surgery. Other types of surgery, it doesn't really matter what you do. And uh, but um, uh, it's also related to the disease. It's also related to sex. Uh, it's also related to um, race and things like that. It's an interesting field. Interesting area, definitely. I mean, I know anesthesiologists, anesthesia is a very interesting subject to me because it does pose a lot of questions um, in regard to the idea that consciousness is a separate entity. Um, Correct. Because it does raise the question, how then does affecting the physical brain effectively stop or turn off consciousness if it has the ability to operate separately? I mean, there are se- several kind of, not theories as such, but hypotheses surrounding how that might be the case. But of course, when you're dealing with something non-physical, how can you ever find the mechanism behind it? You can, actually. Mm-hmm. Because um, that was the main thrust of my last book. And uh, in which basically, when you look at it, actually, and that's quite surprising, not really that surprising, because people basically have the same structure and function, and they've had that for uh, tens of thousands of years, and um, uh, or as far as we know, but when you actually look at how they actually propose this immaterial consciousness, you realize it's all the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, for instance, the ancient Egyptians, Ancient Chinese, much the same. Everyone knows you can't see it, you can't photograph it, 
and don't listen to anyone who says you've got uh, people who have seen um, uh, Saul's departing from uh, yeah. uh, the nearly, uh, dearly beloved, mm. uh, because basically uh, history teaches us, photography teaches us, uh, videos teach us that basically no one, and public executions teach us that no one actually sees a soul departing a deceased body. Why? Because when they speak of this, they say they see it in the normal range of colours, or they experience it in that normal range of colours, um, and which means that basically, if you can see it in a normal range of colours, that means you have to have visible uh, yeah. something. It has to be visible. It's yeah. not. No. It's also and you can uh, and if you, if you look at the time in between death and the departure of the soul, then it should have been visible to all the millions of people viewing public executions, wars, murders, and mm. deathbed scenes throughout many, many millennia. Yeah, that's a good Doesn't point. Happen. Because, yeah, as you say, if it's um, essentially, if, if it's visible to one person, that means that it must be in that range of visible lights, perceptible yes. by our eyes, and therefore everybody with that same ability should therefore see it, but they don't. Exactly. Um, it's also it's, immaterial. Because apparently this consciousness can pass through anything. Well, this is actually consistent with what religions tell us. Because there you look at the uh, Buddhist and the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where they talk about it passing through walls, things like that. It's basically all the same. And mm. as to what the people talk about with out of body experiences, etc. Mm. Um, the consciousness which they talk about actually is the same consciousness as the person possesses during life. Because when you look at near-death accounts and out-of-body experience accounts, ignore these people who have suddenly learned all about the cosmos and quantum physics and all this nonsense. Uh, there's one or two people who talk about that, but everyone else, what they talk about are actually experiences and emotions very similar to what they would have had in life. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the personality and mental abilities, and there are many near-death experiences which actually prove that the mental abilities of this dissociated consciousness are equal to those of the embodied consciousness. Mm. So in other words, and that's the same uh, also in religion, because, for example, go back to Jesus, go back to the Egyptian Book of the Dead, predating that by around 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. They all talk about the disembodied soul of the deceased person actually having the same personality and memories as that of the living person. Mm-hmm. Well, there is what you have is an enormous unity of all these things, near-death experiences, religious con- old religious concepts of the soul. Uh, it's not even old. There are many fundamentalists, who uh, Christians, Buddhists, Islamites, you name it. They all have the same idea. And, um, uh, and in which the soul is the consciousness and has the same personality as that of the living body. Otherwise, why is this business of punishment after death? Yeah, that's right. And um, um, which is interesting. So, it is. As you say, there's a lot of um, near-death experiences which give these experiences of, of being very similar to as they were before they before they died. And you have the, the, the common 
um, going through the tunnel, seeing deceased relatives, seeing religious figures if they are. So those don't particularly interest me because in my opinion, I can see very easily how they would be hallucinogen or hallucinatory, you know, through anoxia or through the drugs that are given. I can understand that. The ones that interest me are the so-called um, apparently non-physical veridical perception. I can't remember exactly what words Jan... Veridical perception. Yeah, during the out-of-body state in which um, verifiable observations seem to take place during um, a period in which the brain should not in, be in a position to do so. Very tricky. Course, yeah, it is very tricky because there's so much stuff we don't know about how the brain works. And it would seem, though, certainly that with our current understandings of neurophysiology it seems to be very difficult to explain in physical terms how some of these can happen if indeed they are written accurately as to how they did happen well actually it's not so difficult mm -hmm. for instance you're talking about um, uh, things like uh, consciousness during cardiac massage mm -hmm. uh, consciousness um, uh, during anesthesia Mm -hmm. Consciousness, uh, while they having been pronounced dead, no, mm -hmm. uh, no, anyone who pronounces someone dead, uh, and the person that wakes up afterwards and says, "I heard you pronouncing me dead," they were most definitely not dead. No, no, <laughs> no. And when you say about cardiac massage as well, that's a that's an important one because, of course, during that stage, you are receiving a certain amount of blood to the brain, which should, in theory, allow consciousness to happen. So it does. Yeah. Uh, so the only real experiences that interest me are those if indeed there are any which they seem to to be written um those that take place while measurable eeg activity is is very low or minimal or, or flat and uh, which ones are you talking about there there's several i've heard you got the um the pam reynolds case i'm not 100 percent familiar with the details of that but um, i'm very familiar stated. with that yeah <laughs> um i've read i couldn't give you specifics but i, I certainly have read a few in titus rivers and um Oh, Titus Rivas, about this man found on the back in a field. That sounds familiar. That sounds. Yep, that one that was a third-hand story. Right. And without any verification, mm -hmm. I actually went to the place where this fellow was found, measured the distance between that and the place where the ambulance was, and mm -hmm. the hospital. And well, it didn't match the. That was in the Oipolder. Uh, near Nijmegen, the city of Nijmegen, or Nijmegen, whatever you want to call it. And uh, the Oipolder. Now, I took photographs of it, and when this event occurred, this was in a time before mobile telephones. That right. means mm -hmm. someone was walking along, saw this fellow lying in a field. He then had to go to a house where there was a telephone before he could get the ambulance. The ambulance then had to drive from Nijmegen to the Oipolder. In other words, what you're talking about is around 15 plus or 30 plus minutes. Now, how long did this was this fellow lying there? It's very simple. He was wearing, he wouldn't have been walking in these fields naked. He was a fellow who was wearing normal clothing, therefore he wouldn't have cooled off very fast. 
Now, I had explained all this to um, uh, what's his name, Pim van Lommel, mm -hmm. and uh, he was not happy, <laughs> especially. And, uh, and the thing is that if your temperature is above 20 degrees or 25 degrees and you have no circulation, if an ambulance arrives after 30 minutes, 20 for 20 minutes, you are very dead. Mm -hmm. You are not alive. No. You can keep a person alive with circular, and uh, that was when during my uh, training as an anesthetist in the um, uh, uh, Westminster Hospital. There, we were using a Drew technique of cardiovascular bypass, or no bypass. We cooled the patients down to a brain temperature of 12, 13 degrees, stopped the machines totally. So there was no heartbeat, no flow of blood, nothing, no breathing. And the surgeon could do his work for around 40 minutes. After which we started it all up again. No breathing, no heartbeat, no circulation of blood. 40 minutes. 40 minutes. That's possible at that temperature. Mm -hmm. But not at the temperature a person would be in a field where they fell down fully clothed and were discovered at that point. Because uh, the lowest temperature which a person was ever found and um, resuscitated was 19 degrees. Now, the thing is, you see that uh, this was a drunk somewhere in Sydney and um, uh, uh, most people, what they do is their heart goes into ventricular fibrillation or asystole, and they are basically dead. So, therefore, this story has a lot of things which are not actually true because this fellow was found. It took them time to uh, find him. It would have taken, I wrote this on one of my websites. I did a very detailed explanation of it, even with the ambulance drive. Mm. Now, the most dangerous time uh, for a person who is found undercooled and somewhat unconscious under snow drifts or under these circumstances, and this was no snow drift, this was a normal field in a cool, uh, cold night and in a clothed person. What happens is then the when the ambulance arrives and the people start resuscitating, they often then flip into ventricular fibrillation. But they haven't had it before that. Mm. Otherwise, they would have been very dead. Yeah. And uh, so, in other words, it was a resuscitation attempt. This is very standard stuff published in medical literature everywhere. And um, uh, so, it was a ventricular fibrillation. Okay, heart massage. Now, in 1987 uh, or in the 80s, when this, no, it was actually in the 70s when this occurred, ambulance um, uh, personnel in Holland. That was very different to what it is now. This appello was a, uh, hauled up by a very good ambulance group. Mm -hmm. I worked in a hospital where the ambulance people ran a cycle shop in this part time, and they did not have any any of the equipment or training that these no, people seem to have had. Absolutely not. Mm. So. These people managed to keep him alive. He arrived in hospital. He, they continued heart massage. 
and they actually had a machine called a Michigan um, uh, external heart compression machine or a thumper, whatever. Right. And I, I had to actually explain to these people that this was what they had. <laughs> so, because neither Vermormal Lewis knew it, or um, um, Smith, Titus, oh, Smith, and Titus Rivas, none of them knew about these things. Hmm. I had to explain it. Hmm. Afterwards, of course, they took well it received. over and said, of course, this has happened. This is nonsense, mm -hmm. of course. I wrote an article for the Near-Death Association newspaper in uh, Holland. They spit it all over, spat all over me, but took it all over and um, uh, came back on it and uh, said, look, uh, said it was all their own idea as well. The story, mm -hmm. as it was told to the normal, was told by a nurse who never checked up on this person afterwards. He was only told by this person when he saw them, when he saw him on the ward one day. Never followed the story up, never did anything else. Mm -hmm. So this is a really silly story to use mm -hmm. as a thing for very additional um, uh, awareness. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is the fellow said, yes, the heart massage hurt. Now, you see this happening, uh, being repeated as well, in several other places as well, like the Italian who wrote about near-death experiences. So basically, what this fellow had was heart, effective heart massage, because with a machine like this Michigan um, external cardiac compression machine, you get efficient heart massage. And there was also a big problem when considering using these machines in Holland, standard in ambulances, because if a person's heart was dead, and there's no way in which you can do anything about it, you have the very ethical problem of when do you turn it off? Mm. When do you give up? Yeah. Yes, because yeah. the person's conscious. Mm. And some of them are so conscious, they can speak. Mm. So what do you do in that position? Difficult. Turn it off. Yeah. Um, uh, and turn it off after discussing it with the person. Mm -hmm. No transplant heart, nothing else for you. That's it. There's nothing we can do. Mm. Say goodbye and to your family and good bye bye and that's it. Mm. There is nothing else. No. So the specific case um, regarding the man in the field, I, I'd have to look back in the books. I, I remember it very vaguely, but I was, I was reading it a while ago, so I'll have anyway, to. If you look useful, on my website, I can... mm -hmm. on neardeath.com, neardeath.com, near yeah. you will find a detailed explanation of it, also with the ambulance times and everything. Mm, and that'll be useful, so I can then cross-reference with the book and the yeah. Okay, well let's let's go on to um, let's go on to Pam Reynolds, which is of course the most well-known case. I know you've done a lot into it, uh, and the the general idea is um, so Pam, who's a musician, underwent surgery for uh, an aneurysm. Um, she was put under deep general anaesthesia. Her brain or her body was called to I don't know the details, but certainly to a hypothermic state, and all the blood was drained from her head. Um, during this time, allegedly, she had a veridical out-of-body perception of no, the... Didn't. Well, that's why I say allegedly. She had a visual perception of a um, bone saw, uh, and she heard the Hotel California, as well as some other um, yep. sounds Correct. going on, while she was... Or well, she also allegedly had her eyes taped shut and the brainstem... Um, earpieces which were at 100 decibels each which mm. uh, Jan relayed were constant according to Dr Spletzer Spletzer was the surgeon who was the surgeon that's right 
Yeah, so that's yeah. kind of the general idea, and that's why it's used as such a strong case, because apparently, as I say again, allegedly this took place during the period while she was um, in this state of, of, I suppose, you could say as close to death as you can be. It's, it's, it is, of course, contradicted as to whether it took place during that time or before and after. Oh, actually, a lot of these things. I also got a very detailed analysis of that on my website with timing and all taken out of the book written by uh, Sabon. Michael Sabum. Mm. And uh, who wrote this one up several years after it happened. Mm-hmm. And um, now, right. when, when you look at the story and analyze it, now the thing is you see the basic. This was a basilar aneurysm and a very large secular aneurysm. So it would have been a little dangerous to try and clip it at the time with normal things. These days this technique is no longer used, but at the time at which Spetzler was working, it was a technique which was used in several clinics. Now, Pam was one of 325 of these patients. In other words, she got the same treatment everyone got. Mm-hmm. No different. And the original articles by Spetzler and his group all detail this very carefully. These are the original articles published in medical journals. And they did a review of them, etc. Now, she was no different to anyone else. So anyone who says it was a special case, they're talking through their neck. Because basically it was not. She was one of 300 so many. Hmm. It's, so, it's often commonly stated that she was kind of one of the um, earlier ones during an, it was kind of an experimental procedure. Uh, That's generally what I get from reading them. When you look at the time at which it occurred, he'd been doing it for several years before and doing it for several years after. So, hmm. so was, perhaps she wasn't was quite so individual. Yeah. And it was nothing special, it was nothing experimental. It was in that clinic a standard technique. Mm-hmm. Which is good because uh, they had a high volume clinic. In other words, they got good results because they're used to doing it. And it's like with any such surgery, like Brucho uh, Tumora and things like that, you've got a high volume clinic, you get good results. And um, uh, that's basically it because everyone's trained, routine, and it all goes bang. So she was one of many. So she got standard treatment. Okay, what did they do? They knocked her out, standard standard drugs, nothing unusual. Now, this business with these earphones, etc. absolute drivel. The thing is, I did a test of this with the same frequency of clicks, same, freq- same volumes, and whether you could hear people speaking outside at the same time. Yes, you can. And they are understandable. I wrote an article about that for the Journal of Near-Death Experiences. Uh, Smith spat all over it and a few of his other chums as well. But they did say they could see hear people speaking. So what, are they, what were they talking about? Mm. So they, they actually did the, the trial themselves with your yeah, experiment? Yeah, I explained how to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, using ear, how, what the type of earphones and everything like that. And um, uh, no, they could hear people speaking as well. Mm. They this said, was oh, 100 decibels, was it? Well, it was loud, very loud. Yeah. 100 dBs. 100 dBs is similar to, isn't it, like they say, a jackhammer outside used yeah, by workers. Correct. That well, sort of this, level. This test and with the frequency and etc. were exactly the same. Hmm. And um, cup earphones. And then as loud as possible, crank them up. Now, hmm. You could hear music. You could hear everything. 
the question I'd have is, what was Pam's brain state during that time when she oh, had the earphones? When you were she... out during general anaesthesia, you get a combination of drugs. At that time, they used thiopentol, thiopentone in England, and um, Americans call thiopentol. But in any case, it doesn't matter. It's the same crap. Um, uh, you use fentanyl, which was used at the time. Uh, we're a very common drug of you have used thiopentone for tens of thousands of anesthetics and uh, and um, fentanyl as well mm-hmm. and um, pavilon or they use nocuron i'm not sure which i think was most likely pavilon mm-hmm. um, i've never heard of but go well on. <laughs> basically one, do the fentanyl thing. is a powerful opiate mm-hmm. around um let's see around a thousand times um a uh, hundred times more powerful than morphine ouch no, actually a thousand. Um, that's that's powerful. So, but you adjust the dosage accordingly. Mm-hmm. Like um, uh, if you used be a hundred times, sorry, sufentanil, which is a thousand, and um, carfentanil, which your olifentanil, is even more. But the thing is, you see, you adjust the dose accordingly. Mm-hmm. In other words, with fentanyl, instead of giving them ten milligrams of morphine, you give them point one milligram of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a problem. No, so she was she was out cold at that point. Well, the thing so. is, the unconsciousness was caused by the initial dose of thiopentone, which wears out in ten minutes. So, how do you keep them unconscious? Well, they use isoflurane uh, at the time, and also a continual infusion of thiopentone. Mm-hmm. Now, these drugs will keep you unconscious, but they use standard doses. Now, the problem with the standard dose is that some people respond very well, but a few do not and are awake. I've Mm -hmm. had this happen as well. And they don't give any sign that they're awake. That's the uh, anaesthesia awareness. Yes. Yeah. And if they're awake and you're operating, that means that they have enough pain stillers on board not to respond with sweating, Mm -hmm. high blood pressure, or a high pulse rate. These are things which also indicate that a person might be awake. And they can't move because they're paralyzed with the pavilion. Or pancuronin, which is very similar to Karari. In other words, they can't breathe, they can't move. And that's normal stuff. And um, so, in other words, the only signs you've got are looking at the eyes to see if the pupils are widening or whether there's a high pulse rate, whether they're sweating, or whether they've got high blood pressure. They can't breathe or, or breathe fast because they can't breathe at all. No. And the machine takes that over. You yeah. stick a tube down the neck. The vent- ventilator. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's uh, a similar sort of thing that's being used in the COVID stuff at the moment. Yeah, correct. And so they can't yeah. scream because basically uh, there's a big tube through their vocal cords. Mm. <laughs> and even if they Not wanted to nice. scream, they couldn't. No. So... There's only a few signs then which are left. Now, eyes are taped shut. Okay. In that case, um, uh, uh, they can't see the eyes, so the only signs you've got are sweating, pulse rate, high blood pressure. None of these mm-hmm. things were there, which indicates that basically she had more than enough uh, pain-killing drug on board. Because if you have a situation whereby a person has insufficient drug concentration to keep them conscious... They're paralyzed and can't move, but they've got more than enough opiate on board. 
I can't remember, did I use fentanyl? Most likely fentanyl. And um, uh, opiate on board for painkilling, then they won't respond. No. So, mm. what most likely has, when you hear the story of Pam Reynolds when she talks about this sore, well, basically, <clears throat> she had an out-of-body experience where she saw this sore. Right. What happened there? Um, First of all, before we get into that, was was this um, was the out-of-body experience during general anesthesia alone? Was it before her? It was before body and was after, before? but not during. And after, but not during. Mm-hmm. Because that she so, wouldn't have had any brain function. So she had two out-of-body experiences, did she, or did she experience multiple. it as one long? Okay. Multiple. In other words, multiple. what she did was she had several periods of consciousness, and she strung them all together. And said, oh, I was conscious the whole time. Right. So from her experience, it was one long thing. Yeah. But, but when you look at the stories, they're intermittent periods. Mm-hmm. That's if you carefully analyze it. So, and the saw. Now, let's face it. She had an out-of-body experience. That happens. And I've had a, a patient as well with one of these. Not a problem. Uh, the thing is, you have a sensors within your muscles called muscle spindles. Now, these respond differently to um, uh, muscle relaxants in the sense that it takes longer for the muscle relaxant or paralyzing drug, curare-like drug, to work. It also takes longer for the curare-like drug to get out. And during these periods, you have sensations of weight, um, uh, disembodiment, and other things. In addition to which, opiates such as fentanyl, morphine, zoofentanyl, heroin can all induce out-of-body experiences by actions on uh, morphine receptors within the brain. So, and then the other thing is a very disorienting sensation of one difficulty, and you see this in some descriptions of people who are being paralyzed, but they lose the sense of where their body is. Mm-hmm. And that's been paralyzed with curare. There are many accounts, several accounts of this, that people have experimented with this. And so basically, they lose their sense of where their body is. And that's basically the main function of these muscle spindles. So in other words, that she had an out-of-body experience during a period she was high on morphine-like drugs and also had the sensation of uh, unable to sense where her body was due to muscle-paralyzing drugs curare-like drugs, one doesn't surprise me, she had an out-of-body experience. Mm-hmm. Now, she could also hear, okay, they say, yeah, well, there were the speakers inserted into her ears with lots of cotton and then micropore tape on top. What a load of crap. I used micropore for 40 years. It's a very thin tape made of paper. So, uh, yeah. And if you so stuff, not much, cotton, yeah, what? Not much, sound, not much sound insulation capability. From Absolutely that. not. And then mm. if you uh, put a bit of cotton and um, uh, gauze on underneath it, you don't have much sound insulation either. No. So this no. is all rubbish. So in other words, she could hear, in spite of these clicking sounds, she could hear. And were the, were the clicking sounds constant, or were they intermittent? Ah, uh, they were. Um, uh, it depends on which phase of the operation they wanted to check it out to see that it was working but they wouldn't have done it continually during the whole operation they may have to get a baseline mm-hmm. but then 
she was at normal body temperature until they turned on the bypass. Mm -hmm. In other words, she was not cooled at any time until after the skull was opened and until the um, uh, uh, until the skull was opened mm -hmm. and um, uh, and then they investigated the aneurysm to see whether this could be done without any hypothermia. Then when that was done, they then proceeded to induce hypothermia. Mm -hmm. And did they then drain the blood at the same time? Uh, when they did that, yes, they first would have cooled her and then drained blood. Mm -hmm. In other words, anticoagulate to stop the blood clotting, yeah. you know, they pump them full of heparin and such like, standard stuff. And um, uh, they would have pulled it uh, down a bit, kept some circulation, that uh, well, maybe even just stop it altogether like we used to do in uh, the Westminster mm -hmm. Hospital. But because at that point, obviously at that temperature, the metabolism is so slow that you can do it. It without. is. It slows yeah. and nothing happens and you're not conscious. And um, you're definitely not conscious. Definitely not, no, no. So in that case, now what she had also was a near-death experience because basically this woman was terrified. Now, fear-death experiences are also well-known. Mm -hmm. Common, yeah. And uh, so she did had a standard Western European American um, near-death experience. She saw her uncles and other family mm -hmm. members, this type of stuff. Uh, in other words, it's basically culturally. Um, yeah. uh, As opposed to seeing Buddha or Shiva or whoever else. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There are also near-death experiences in Asiatic countries and they see their local pantheon. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, so she had a standard Western European near-death experience meeting relatives and things like that. Okay. Mm. Then they cooled her down to a uh, very low temperature, did the aneurysm, and then star rewarmed her and got her heart back because at the time she was on bypass, when, once they warmed her up to an acceptable temperature, because otherwise there's no point starting the heart again, it'll only go into fibrillation. So you warm them up to an adequate temperature, and at that time she may have been conscious because she describes having been defibrillated. So, in other words, she was warmed up to an acceptable temperature at which there was little risk of cardiac fibrillation, ventricular mm -hmm. fibrillation, defibrillated, which she describes. And um, uh, it's a very standard technique. And at this point, the blood was reintroduced, so there would be enough... No, the blood, blood would have been circulating. Mm -hmm. So that would enable a conscious experience in theory. Yeah. Certainly. yeah. And she would have been warmed up at the time as well. So in other words, mm -hmm. in brain circulation, there was a normal, uh, adequate temperature. In other words, around 30 or a little more, uh, 30 degrees or a little more. Otherwise, they wouldn't have defibrillated her. And so at this point, this, this is when she described the defibrillation. Yep. So so in theory, so she would have had two, two cases of um, anesthesia awareness before the cooling and after. No. Mm-hmm. Which and then, the, yeah, okay. And then what happens later on when they're finishing off? They're sewing up the wounds. She describes them playing Hotel California. Well, basically, she had brain circulation. She was warmed up, and they were winding down the anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And they would have also right. turned off. The clicks to her earphones as well. This is no function in doing that. 
anymore. Mm -hmm. No, because they don't need to monitor the brainstem at that point. Yeah. So, in other words, she would have been able to hear them speaking if she was awake and aware, but she would have been paralysed because of muscle paralysing drugs. She wouldn't have had, uh, she would have had a lot of pain-killing drugs on board. So um, uh, they would have, uh, that would also have reduced the pain. So she would have been paralysed lying there. And because of morphine-like drugs, they cause a form of indifference. And uh, she would have laid there, oh, interesting. Uh, uh, oh, why are they playing Hotel California? That sounds like me. And yeah. so, and uh, she moaned about it being very insensitive. Well, mm -hmm. okay. Then uh, they um, uh, took her to the intensive care to recover. And uh, she woke up after a while because they wouldn't have extubated her right at once. They would have taken her to the intensive care to uh, let the drugs wear off and uh, let her wake up gradually mm -hmm. uh, and there was there is another um, factor in there which is where she described the bone sore and as you say which is something i agree with is that i um, don't if, if well so, something that you say regarding that that i agree with is that if the um bone sore was making a, a noise similar to what you'd expect any small instrument like that to make you would naturally associate it with something like a an electric toothbrush which would make a very similar sort of sound correct which and, would, of course, allow you to create a visual image of that, um, yeah. which I agree with, absolutely. And because a trephination okay. source, such as they used, mm -hmm. that would have produced just that sound. That does, mm -hmm. in fact, produce a sound very, well, not quite similar. It's a mm -hmm. quite an unpleasant sound. But in any case, yeah. a lot of vibration yeah. and things like that. Now, what is like interesting about vibration mm -hmm. at this particular time is, now, like if a person is sleeping and you shake them, they wake up. Mm -hmm. Good. What happens to a person under anesthesia with their level of consciousness? If you vibrate them and shake them, such as effectively occurs with this, they will also, their level of consciousness will also increase. It's a well-known, not that well-known, but there are studies on this, but it's these levels yeah. and such like. So in other words, the very fact of being sawed and being drilled, and the skull being drilled, being sawn, would have also elevated a level of consciousness even mm -hmm. further. In addition to which, and that's even more interesting, the vibrations due to this would have been transmitted through the skeleton. And these vibrations, they're usually in the low, um, below 50 hertz. And at these particular frequencies, muscle spindles also provides sensations of floating. And there's been studies done on this in the 70s by Gandavia, etc. And uh, this is what you also see at pop concerts with people who drape themselves over the bass boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, yes. And I've been to one such concert and it was way too loud for me. I'd never go again. Yeah, well, some <clears throat> people drape themselves over the bass speakers. And why? Because they have sensations of floating. And this is what happens also with low frequency stimulation, vibrations as well. So, in other words, she had a number of reasons why she would have actually had an out-of-body experience. Mm. So, in other words, the fact that she provides in a visual account is something different. Why? Spetzler had already explained to her what they were going to do. He had even shown some of the tools of the trade beforehand. Did, really? Did that? That I would have thought that would have terrified her. 
Well, anyway. Although that might add to the, yeah. So in other words, now, then we come to the, uh, so this explains her experience. It was a several experiences. The visual experience, people fill, tend to fill that in, mm. the visual yeah. experiences. So in other words, and in addition to which, uh, did anyone see her float above the table? No. No. Or float near the ceiling? I've had one patient who described a very good near-death experience, uh, out-of-body experience. I didn't see anything. <laughs> no, dear, no one else did. Hmm. And of course, that's, that's assuming that that would be some somewhat based in physical nature and not, if you want to say, paranormal well, in nature. But it's basically a. These are basically hallucinations due to various changes of body function. There's not one change; it's usually a multiple factors. Mm. And uh, so, then what happens after the operation? Now, there's a very fascinating interview with Pam Reynolds, in which basically she tells her parents were there, her family was there, and she says, "Yeah, I was awake during the operation. I floated above, and I saw all this." Now. When you look at this interview and what actually happened, I published this interview on my website as well. It is fascinating. Now, this was in the early 90s, <laughs> at which time people in, in, in anesthesiologist in America got a lot of advice about how to dress in court for uh, malpractice suits. It was a big thing at the time. You even had mm. courses how to manage and things like that. Now, what happened when she told of this and said, told this to one of the doctors there, they all rushed in and explained it to her, yes, this did happen, very sorry, yes, 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 they are cool, but now... Yeah, fearing for their own careers. Exactly. And this mm. is what is described in this interview. Right, yeah, so they were... If you read between agreeable. the lines, that the concern yeah. of these doctors mm. was basically that. So that would also explain why Dr. Spletzer or Speltzer still says that it's certainly an inexplicable case from well, his point of it view. it is to a degree inexplicable if you don't know the physiology. Mm. In other words, a one, you ask one expert and he says, I can't explain it. But that doesn't mean no one else can. Mm. Course, I've made yeah. a big study of these things for a long time, so I can partially explain many of them, much of it. But that will not see it, that I can explain everything. But in other words, now, if you ask any other doctor, oh, this is inexplicable. I can't explain it. That does not mean it is inexplicable. It just no. means that person cannot explain it. Cannot explain it, yeah. And this is the big fault that many of these people who say, Pam Reynolds is the definite, definitive proof. Why? Dr. Spetzler says he can't explain it. That's rubbish to use that as a um, uh, as proof. There's nonsense. And uh, look, for example, if you talk about the collapse of a bridge, uh, the bridge going to in the 40s, of that bridge going across the Bay of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I cannot explain it, but the engineers can. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. So it's the same situation.